morning what we're going to do is we're going to dive in to one of the most powerful and life-shaping passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. And so the title of the message is Not Done Yet. Not Done Yet. Like you are not done. And so uh, a perspective on, look, on life and death and why we're still here. Those are three things we need to talk about. And so I'm going to talk about, I'm going to answer three questions. The first question is, like, what does it mean to live? And then what does it mean to die? And why are we still here? So we're going to look at some other verses before we get to this here. But Paul writes from prison. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're able to stand to your feet, to stand. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I'll read the even verses. If you can read the odd verses. And uh, we want to fill the people of God, fill the house of God with the word of God. So everybody ready? I'll do the first one. It says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful label for me. But yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Father, thank you for everyone that's gathered here. Thank you for everyone who's watching online. Lord, we invite that the Spirit of the living God would come and do what only you can do in the opening of our eyes and our ears and the stirring of our hearts with the desire to hear and to apply the Scriptures. I pray, Lord, for the safety of our community, the weather and the elements and what happens. We, Lord, we call upon your name. The Spirit of the living God would be moving in this place, moving in our hearts, and we would be captivated by you and captivated by your God-breathed word and that we would leave here knowing that we've heard the voice of God through the word of God and we would be stirred up and fired up to live for you and leave here knowing that there is no one like you. Jesus is awesome and everyone agreed by saying, not done yet. So what does it mean to live and what does it mean to die and why are you still here? I want to begin with the introduction of William Wallace, the Scottish reformer, the Scottish knight, who in 1305 was killed there in London because he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't pledge his loyalty to a foreign king. He could have not been killed at that moment if he would pl pledge his allegiance to a foreign king. He led the independence of uh, from England there. So he was a hero, uh, but when uh, he died, he said this before his death. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. So we don't just want to be alive here, gathered this morning watching online. But we really want to be those who really are really living. Like Jesus said, I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. Well, what does that mean? We want to unpack that. And I feel a little bit of what, what needs to happen here this morning 
is that there's a, a hit of a reset button. And the reset button that we're hitting is a reset button on perspective. And that we would gain a new perspective on what does it mean then to live? And what does it mean to, to die? And what does it mean that, why am I still here? And so I want to introduce the passage by talking about uh, what has happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. The book of, of Ephesians, I'm sorry, of Philippians, four chapters is like an old school email. And so Paul is under house arrest in Caesarea there. And uh, this is one of the notorious prison disciples. Christ followers in Philippi were greatly concerned, freaked out, hitting the panic button, stressed about what was happening to Paul. And so uh, they're thinking, what's going to happen to his future? Is he going to lose his life? Uh, we better pray for him. He's chained to a guard. What's going to happen? And so Paul writes to them in a large part then to answer their questions and to address their fears, to cheer them up, to bring encouragement, to speak words of life, uh, and then about his circumstances and his impending potential death. So as Paul's in chains, he's not discouraged. He's not despondent. He's not depressed uh, about his situation, and he begins to communicate that to them. So you need to know, though, that death was a very real possibility, and he's already been tried, and he's awaiting his sentencing. So they're essentially telling him, Paul, get your order, get your affairs in order. Don't hope for the best, because we don't know that any day could be your last, and you may get the call that you're going to be executed. So these are the thoughts of a man who has one foot in the grave. The thoughts of a man who has one foot in the grave. Paul is staring into the valley of the shadow of death. So I thought it might be helpful for us to, to get a little insight into culture. Uh, where's our culture at? So I picked one person to, to exemplify that. And uh, it's a world-famous theologian of renown by the name of Johnny Depp. Well, a world-famous actor anyways. And so the subject of death comes up. And so being one of the most successful actors of our day, who's done two worldwide dollar, uh, billion dollar grossing uh, movies, gets millions of dollars just for kind of showing up, this global celebrity here. He said in the interview, he said, I don't know what I want to be. What? I, thought, I thought you were Johnny Depp. I don't know what I want to be. And I quote, there's a part of me that thinks that I would not be too bad. It wouldn't be too bad if I split for a few years and thoughts of retirement pop up every day. And the interviewer was getting a little bit stunned by his responses and said to him, hey, like, what would you do? And he said this, I guess really live life. So for him to live is to really live life, whatever that means for him. Later in the interview, they asked him about God. He said, I don't believe in God. And he said this, I think we are here, and that's kind of it. So for me to live is, I think we're kind of here, and that's really it. Okay. And next they asked him about to die. Like, what does that mean here? And he said, just dirt and worms. So for me to live are just kind of here to die, just dirt and worms. And I say that because uh, he's not alone culture and uh, the bleak and hollow assessment of death, that is just a physical dissolving of our bodies, and death is the end, and then it's just blackness and nothing more than that. And so we want to hit the reset button on what that means. And so 
Paul now, and his, the background is this. Paul's got his critics. They're in their house arrest in Caesarea, and so he's got a share of critics. He's got people trash-talking him, uh, people that are maligning him, people that are assaulting him, people that are taking advantage and leveraging that he's in lockup there, uh, lockup to Praetorian uh, Imperial Guard, some of the most influential people in all of culture. So he was responding to them, and he says this to all of that. Hard to imagine what's happening to them. They're like, is it really real, Paul? Is, is it really happening? He says, yes, verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy or jealousy or rivalry or competitiveness, but others out of goodwill, out of a pure heart. He said, it's true. I know it's hard to believe, but it's actually true that this is happening. Yeah, it's shocking and all, but there are people who have pure, pure motives and those that, that don't. And they're, they're thinking like, this doesn't make sense. Why would someone preach about Christ and have impure motives? Why would they have envy in their hearts full of envy, hearts full of jealousy, hearts full of competitiveness, hearts uh, full of rivalry? Why would they do that? And he said this, some preach Christ. Well, do they like love God? Yeah, they love God. Do they serve in the church? Yeah, they serve in the church. They have pure hearts? No. They don't have pure hearts. Uh, are they preaching heresy? No. Are they heretics? No. Are they inside the church? Yes. These are people that would sign Paul's doctrinal statement, and Paul would sign theirs. See, they're not preaching a different gospel. The problem here is not a doctrinal problem. It's a personal problem. So the message is the same. The motive is different. Right message, wrong motive. Poor motives, on one hand, people have pure motives on the other. So it says, it's true, some preach Christ out of envy or jealousy. The right, mo the right message, heck yeah, preach Christ. The wrong motivation, absolutely. So why, why are they envious? Why are they, why are they jealous? Why is there rivalry and competition with Paul now that he's in chains? Well, think about it. Who has a position like Paul? Who's writing two-thirds of the New Testament like Paul? Who has the kind of revelation of Paul? Who has the massive, towering intellect of the Apostle Paul? Who has the incredible giftedness and platform of the Apostle Paul? Who know his knowledge of the Scripture and his accomplishments and his experience in there, you know, seeing the resurrected Christ? Well, they're reacting to that. And so now there's tension. And there's rivalry. And there's conflict and all. So the critics then are trash-talking. They're saying things like this. Yeah, the apostle Paul, he got what he deserves. That dude is done in my book. I mean, who knows what, he, what, he, what he's doing here? He needs to be humbled. Don't you think he needs to be humbled there? I mean, how does a man of faith, like, end up in prison? And so he's chained to the guards. I mean, God probably had to do that. God, I think God had to, to lock him up. What, what do you think, you know? Uh, he's got some things to learn, that Apostle Paul. And so they're just trash-talking nonsense and all. And so, uh, so, but you see the dynamic. All of that to the, making the point now. There's a dynamic that's happening. The dynamic has not died. The dynamic happened then. The dynamic happens now. And Paul is saying this. Remember, Paul then uh, dictating under the, uh, the influence of the Holy Spirit the letter and he's like, don't miss it. We've got to record this because he wants to know what is happening in the church then, what happens now. 
What happened to the great apostle Paul can happen to you. You see, you can find yourself, pure motives, like Paul, serving in the church, and other people can be jealous of you. And you didn't do anything to provoke it. You did nothing to precipitate it. But they look at you and they think, oh, I, yeah, he's pretty gifted. You know, uh, she really has the blessing of God on her life. Wow, how did, how did he get that position? Wow, they, they've got so many friends. I hardly have any friends. How did they get that, that opportunity? Why, why don't I get the opportunity? And so Paul writes so that we know it happened and it will happen. And so the question is, though, how are you going to react? And how did the apostle Paul react? Verse 16, said the latter, do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul said, I know there are people that have good motives. I know there are people that don't. There are people that have good motives. They're sincere. They do it out of love. And let me just say this, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, that this place is filled with people like that, that do it out of love. We can never pay them enough. We can never thank them enough. And you are them. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you and thank you. Oh, I could get emotional thinking about it. But this is how you operate. This is who you are. This is how you roll. Paul said, hey, I got those who do it out of love. And I would say, all of you, 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 you do it out of love. And so, uh, but we're all in process. Nobody's perfect here. But watch what Paul says. Here's his perspective. Remember, trash talk, trash talk. You stink. I was put here for the gospel. Like, they're wondering, what happened? I was put here for the gospel. In other words, it literally means it's a military term. When he says, put here, I was literally divinely by God Almighty. I was put here in prison. That was a God thing. God, like, I'm on duty. Remember, it's military uh, language here. It says, I was placed here. In any case, I was placed here by the hand of God. So the people, they loved Paul. Now they know, oh, Paul was placed there actually by God himself. That's awesome. And look what's going to happen. That's why he could say, he could say that uh, don't feel sorry for me and feel sorry for my change. He said the things that happened to me happened for the advancement of the gospel. The Caesar's palace is being now impacted by that. He says these are the kingmakers. The Praetorian Guard were the future kingmakers. They were the future senators. They were the elites of culture. Now Paul was getting to meet with them one every six hours, four a day, 28 a week, about uh, over 100 a month, over 1,000 a year, two to 3,000, the Praetorian Guard, one-on-one -on -one with the Apostle Paul. And what do you think they were talking about? So Paul says, look, it was for the advancement of the gospel. But they're trash-talking. Oh, that Apostle Paul, man, God put him in prison because he failed God. Contrary to that, the, the truth is, no, he was faithful. No, it's because Paul did everything wrong. No, it's because Paul did everything right in his life here. Then you look at verse 17 here, and here's what the critics are, are doing. Verse 17, the former, the critics, that is, the trash-talking turkeys. Okay, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Not with sincere motives, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Okay, not pure motives. It's out of selfishness, selfish gain, selfish advancement, uh, seeing what they can get out of it, all about them. They saw Paul's imprisonment as their opportunity. 
for their personal advancement, okay? So uh, now, I think we need to recognize at this point, let me interject this, there's no perfect people. And you can't judge people. You can't judge what's in their hearts. Okay, you don't know what's in their hearts. And you probably met people that you thought uh, you judged them one way and you came to find out later, I was absolutely wrong. And so I think we, a, a sub-point is don't judge people because uh, nobody's perfect in this place beginning uh, with the speaker this morning. So what are they doing with Paul? They're throwing him under the bus. They're attacking him for all the wrong reasons here. And they're not preaching to build people up. They're not preaching to uh, expound the, uh, the awesomeness of the scriptures and all. No, they've got, they've got personal agendas here. So they're just irritating Paul, causing him grief here. But what I want us to see now, this is building. This is building. to like a, So that's just kind of like the background. Now I'm building to an important point here. And here's the important point that you need to get. You need to hit the reset button on you uh, in your life. Here it is. Paul's response is a compelling example of a positive attitude, even in the midst of daunting challenges and frustrating limitation. And Paul now begins to put on a clinic about having a great attitude when people are trash-talking you and, uh, and people are crazy and people are cruel because you're going to have your critics and people are going to take cheap shots at you like they did him. And the time is going to come when you are annoyed by the pettiness of, uh, around you and you got to think like, how am I going to react? So notice how Paul does not react. Notice there's no focus on the Apostle Paul. Notice he never says like, oh, can you believe what they did to me? You know, and starts spewing uh, his, his bitterness about what happened. He doesn't say, oh, why me, Lord? Nothing of the sort here. What he says is this. Well, what does it matter? What a great way to hit the reset button and begin to build that into your life. His response, his attitude towards his persecutors is this. It's like this. Look at me. Everybody look at me. It's like this. No big deal. Not an issue. I'm fine. Ah, trash talk. Here's what I know. Paul says, the gospel message is more powerful than the flawed people that it comes through. The gospel message, the Bible is more powerful than the people speaking it. As far as I'm concerned, Christ is preached, and I'm, I'm good. I'm happy with that. Paul saw the big picture. Yeah, were they flawed individuals and uh, impure? Yeah, yes, true. But he saw how God then was weaving, weaving uh, his plan through his pain and his negative circumstances and advancing the cause of Christ. So there you got the authorities locking him up. Then Paul, that just is an open door in lockup, in lockup, then it's an open door of opportunity to preach the gospel to the powerful Praetorian guard, only God. So he says, what does it matter? Like, like, what a great disposition, what a great attitude to have. And so we notice that he doesn't focus on the people who did him wrong. Not only didn't focus on himself, doesn't focus on the people that did him wrong. Doesn't focus on his critics and all the trash talking. See, why? Very important point. And some of us really need this point. Say, if you focus on everybody that did you wrong, okay, it'll negatively impact you. It'll negatively impact your attitude. It'll embitter you. If you only focus on all the negative things, like Paul, he's not focusing on the negative and all the trash talkers and their impure motives. No, he says, okay, I'm going to focus on the positive. The gospel is going out. And so, so I want us to see here that 
If you only focus on the negative things done to you, you doom yourself. You doom yourself to a prison of bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness if you do that. So uh, what do you focus on when somebody wrongs you? Somebody mistreats you? How, how do you deal with that? And how do you respond? And so we got we we to decide this before it happens. Paul did that. So he said, because of this, uh, I will rejoice. And yes, as far as the future goes, I will rejoice. So see, he adds for good measure, not only now, but in the future, uh, no matter what happens to me, I will rejoice. He's predetermining his future response regardless of what happens. Friends, if you don't do that, you're just going to react and do your best, and a bad situation is going to get worse. So you got to think, how am I going to react? I, 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 I'm not just saying that. I do this very thing. I have predetermined how I'm going to react. I predetermined how I'm going to react when people trash talk Rod Collins. People jump online, and that Rod Collins, he didn't know what the stink he's talking about, and blah, blah. I've predetermined my response. And my response is this. I don't get to strike back. Not an option. No matter what they say, no matter what you say, not an option for me to strike back. I have predetermined my response, like the Apostle did, Apostle Paul did here. you got to think about how, just in that area of my life. So it wasn't long ago, somebody trash-talks me uh, uh, and leaves church about what I didn't do, and I'm not this and that. And so, uh, and so my wife says, so what are you going to do? My wife, she was riled up. You know, she, she, she was not happy. She said, well, what are you going to do? Did you, did, you read the, did you read what they said on Facebook and Instagram? I said, no. I said, and I'm not going to read it. I said, and I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to respond to whatever, what they did. I'm not going to strike back. It's not an option for me. And so, Paul says, oh, whatever happens in the future, uh, I am going to act this way. So Paul transitions then to address the Philippians who are freaking out of their brains about what's going to happen to him. Verse 19. Now remember, he's their spiritual father. He's nurtured them, started the church, all that stuff. He says, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me is going to turn out for my deliverance. I will be okay. I will be all right. I know you've been praying for me to get out of prison, uh, but I might just exercise my apostolic deal and ask God to block that because something awesome is going to happen in prison. But Paul says here, the supply of the indwelling spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit will give Paul everything that he needs. He needs strength. Yes, the Spirit will give him strength boldness, you name it, confidence, guidance, uh, power, everything the Spirit, uh, the supply of the Spirit will give him, the Holy Spirit. So uh, where you need God's provision, God will give that to you. We have not because we ask not. Everything you need, look for it. God is, you know, he's Jehovah Jireh, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, giving everything that he needed. Literally means the bountiful supply. So God will deliver us uh, he may do that temporarily, like with Paul. It was a couple years later, but ultimately he delivers us. And he says, I want you to know what I'm thinking, verse 20. We're going to actually get to the outline in just a moment in the next verse. 
I eagerly expect, this is awesome, and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage or boldness so that as now as always, Christ will be, here it is, watch, exalted and magnified in my body, whether by life or death. So God's greater than your circumstances. God's greater than anything. And he says, watch, I eagerly expect. In other words, he's looking forward to the future here and his perspective is this. I just want to magnify and exalt Jesus Christ. But you're in prison, yeah? But that's where it's going to happen. So to many people, many Christ followers, I think that, just my opinion, people don't quite have great clarity on this. Where we're just kind of floating through life. And you say, well, what's God's will? Here it is, to magnify Jesus, to exalt Jesus. Just these four words, to live is Christ. There it is. So God wants you to understand that the very purpose of your existence bound up in these four words, to live is Christ, to magnify Jesus. So if you're a Christ follower, your singular purpose then is to magnify Christ. What does magnify mean? Here's what magnify means. Look it. It says to declare great. This is with your life, with who you are. I'm a student. Here it is. This is what you're to do. Uh, I'm a truck driver. There it is. I'm a teacher. I'm a pilot. I'm retired. Here it is. I'm a counselor. Here it is. Here's what you do. This is to magnify him, to declare great, to esteem him highly, to extol, to laud, uh, to celebrate, to give glory and praise. That's what you do right there. That's to magnify. That is your life there. So notice this is Paul's focus. Notice that getting out of prison is not his focus. Notice that his trial is not his focus. His impending potential death is not his focus. So he says, what is his focus? Here it is. I eagerly expect, here's his focus. So as he's saying here, literally means my expectation, my hope, his words, were not that he would bring shame to the name that is above every name. That's what I want. I don't want to bring shame to the name that is above every name. What his words actually mean when he says, I eagerly expect, it means to be on tiptoe. You know, like you're so excited, like, like little kids will do that, like they can't control, and they're on tiptoe. And that's what he's saying. I'm so eagerly expecting here that it means to, to crane the neck, like, like I'm going to need to see a chiropractor if it gets, I get any more excited here. So he's super excited about something here with anticipation and excitement and enthusiasm. It means to be on little pins and needles here at the edge of his seat here. But he's saying like, I'm so excited to see how God is going to be glorified in my prison situation. That's what he's eagerly expecting here. My purpose to exalt Christ. And so how do we do that? And how we live and how we act and our attitude and what we speak and all. So then he says this, whether by life or by death. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was martyred for his testimony as a, a young man, his 30s. And he said this, Whenever Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him lose his life and follow me. Perspective on life, number one, is this. Not yet done. What does it mean to live? The answer is for me to live as Christ, verse 21, to die is gain. To live is Christ. Four words is you can base your entire existence 
on these four words. This is your purpose. We live in a world, friends, has no idea of how to live. So where do you look? Everywhere you go, no idea how to live. Turn on the TV, no idea how to live. Johnny Depp, no idea how to live. And so you know the giver of life. You know the creator. You know real life is found in Christ if you're a Christ follower. Jesus said, I came that you might have life. To live is Christ, to be centered on Christ, where your life and your identity is in him. In him we live and move and have our being. And our life is summed up in Christ. I'm filled with Christ. I'm occupied with Christ. I trust in Christ. I love Christ. I hope in Christ. In this case, he preached Christ. He followed Christ. You fellowship, you have relationship with Christ. He is the center of your world. Okay, Christ in Christ alone is my inspiration, is my dedication, is my direction, is my meaning, is my purpose. For me to live is Christ. Well, watch this. What if we personalize this? So everybody, you look at the screen with me. If we could put your name on the top, just put your name up there. And then you were to say, okay, uh, if I was to be honest with my life, for me to live is what? For some, maybe for, for, for many, but for me to live is Christ, but then we might have a Christ plus. There's no guilt in that. I just want to make application. For me to live is what? For me to live is, for some in the world out there, to, for me to live is me. For me to live is all about me all the time. For me to live is my agenda. It's, my, it's me. It's self. And so for others, for me to live is, I grew up in a home. For me to live is career. Love my dad. For me to live was, was career. It wasn't family. It wasn't marriage. It wasn't God. It was career. It was work. For other people, for me to live is, is travel or entertainment. Nothing wrong with that. He has given us all things freely to enjoy. So, but for me to live, sometimes it could be at my, uh, my hobbies or my, maybe it's all about my education or my, my possessions or, or my fun or whatever it is. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love to have fun. Oh, this church should be fun. But when you deify fun, then you've got issues. So for me to live is what? Paul said for me to live is Christ. What does that mean? That means he's calling the shots. And you say yes to the shots. You say yes to the large print. And you say less yes to the fine print. You let him have the steering wheel of your life. He wrote to the church of Galatians and said, I've been crucified with Christ, yet it's not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. He wrote to the church at Colossae and said, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. To the Corinthians, he said, he said, your life is not your own. So you willingly surrender then your life to Christ. And so to live for Christ then is to be his, to be his instrument, to be his vessel for the Lord. And he wants to use you, uh, even in your imprisoned situation like the apostle. Christ lives in me and he wants to live through me. So that is a perspective on life. You're not done yet. Well, what am I not done with? For me to live is Christ, that perspective. Secondly now, a perspective on death. And let me say this. If your perspective is not 
for me to live as Christ, then it completely messes up to die as gain because it's not true. You see, if for me to live as me, me to live as my possessions, and all about me all the time and my entertainment, my this and my that, then to, to die is not gain. Then to die is only loss because of all that you're losing. So you have to get the first, per, first part right if the second part is going to be true of you. When for me to live as Christ is true, yes, then to die as gain is also true. So, uh, so Paul is saying here that it's not your life to live anymore. That what does it mean to die? He says to die, um, it's not worms and turning into dirt, but to die is gain. I mean, who's going to tell you that? Who in culture is going to tell you the truth about dying? Okay, but the, the scriptures tell you to die is gain. Paul makes it very clear that there's a superior, that dying is superior to anything else. It's like graduating to something that is so awesome, it's almost unspeakable. And so, in fact, he said that. When he went to heaven, he said, I, I can't even speak about how awesome that it is here because death has been defeated. Jesus beat death. And so he is the victor over death. It has no more power over you. Check out this picture here. Uh, I love this picture. So of Jesus standing over death. And you know where that picture comes from? That's Muhammad Ali after he defeated Sonny Liston and won the world championship. And so the author took that picture. Of like, he was like, dude, you are not getting up. And Jesus is like saying that to darkness. You are not getting up. He's defeated death. Okay. I just thought you would like that. I'm not sure if you do or not. But anyway, you get the point. Heaven's the jackpot. Heaven is everything. It's not like some little consolation-like prize. Like, ah, you know, we're, you, you got to try harder next time. So we need a consolation. And sometimes I think we treat heaven like it's a consolation prize. Like it's sort of a lame acknowledgement that says, well, you lost, but here's your consolation. No, not, perish the thought here. Paul is, not, is saying, look, this is better than anything imaginable. To die is gain. It's not like some heavenly hype job here. Paul is saying, look, to die and to be with Christ is far better in every way than you could even imagine here. And so we may be uncertain about our, our end, our, uh, but we can be certain about heaven will be much more better in every way than what we experience on earth. Verse 22, he said, now, so we've talked about hitting the reset button on perspective. We've talked about how, what is our perspective on life, to live as Christ, on death, to die as gain. Number three here, well, what am I supposed to do with the time remaining? Verse 22, and if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart like he's been there. Okay, I don't, and go, and to be with Christ, which is better by far. He says, look, I'm conflicted. Okay, I'm hard pressed. I, I don't know what to do anymore. And he says, he says thank, thank you for praying for me and all that stuff. And I'm going to get out of jail. But look, look, I have a desire to depart uh, as a prisoner. Uh, to, it's like a ship leaving harbor. It's like a prisoner being freed. That's what it means there, to depart. He says, it's better by far. Being ushered in the presence of God, friends, is better by far. To enter into the resurrected life with Jesus 
it's very much better. It is not that he wants to go to heaven because oh, I'm chained to this, these guards here and my life stinks. No, that's not it at all. And so he, wants to, he doesn't want to go to heaven because life is, is undesirable. But nobody recognizes heaven is very much better here. And so and it's not a consolation prize. It's the jackpot. And I can't wait to go here. And it'll go on forever and never. And this is from a guy that has been to heaven one time. This kind of got a guest pass and came back. But Paul now gives a sneak preview, had a sneak preview and a guest pass to heaven. And so after seeing that, he desperately wanted to return. It was so off the charts. So indescribable. So, so that's why he's like, he's torn between the two. Why are we still here? Verse 24. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Why? Because he's their spiritual father. Because he's nurtured them. Started the church. He, he, he's parenting them. So it's more necessary as your spiritual father that, that I should stay. So that I, that I could influence you and take care of you. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I close with this. I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So we are not yet done. Why are we still here? Here's why we're still here. God still has a reason for you being here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Until Jesus calls us home, we have work to do. It is not quitting time. There is work to be done. We have a window to work in, and the window is closing. A window to do what? Live the life God's called you to live as a church corporately, to, to do that also, to influence the community, to bring Christ to the community, to be a light uh, in the darkness in the community, to put a dent in the darkness, to bless the community, to do Hope City, to take tons of food to Mexico, to build homes, in Mexico, to serve this community, love this community, and be hands and, feet of Jesus, hands and feet of Jesus to the community here. So Paul realized that going to heaven was to his advantage. But simultaneously, to his, it was to his disadvantage, it would be a loss to them. Good for him, bad for them. Translation, until God called him home, Paul needed to stay planted on earth. And so do you. So heaven is a massive upgrade. But Paul said, as much as I long to go, I'm willing to stay because it's more needful for you. What a great way to, 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 to live your life. You know, you can think, well, I just want out of here. Well, what about, what about the people that need you? What about what God wants to do through you? See, this should be our mentality. I'm willing to stay. And that right there, right now, is the goal of life for the Christ follower. You may not be comfortable, but the time remaining on earth to spend the moments not just kind of evaporating, the time evaporating into thin air, doing things that, you know, like don't matter for, like he's saying here, look, you only have one shot. So you want to give it all you've got with your one shot. Take your best shot, do the work that Christ has called you to do, because why? We can't do the work when we're in heaven. See, when we're in heaven, we can't share the gospel. 
as, as, as great as it's going to be, when we're in heaven, we, we can't bless the community. We can't feed the homeless. We can't go to Mexico. We can't restore the prodigal. We can't feed orphans in Africa. We can't do Hope City. None of these things are done from heaven. So with the time remaining, remaining Paul said, it is needful for me to be here for you. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to go to heaven, but it's more needful. So that is the mentality that you want to build into your life here. You want to build that into your life. And so what are we doing then? The title of the message, and I close with this, not yet done. A perspective on life a perspective on death, a perspective on why we are still here. To live is Christ. Can we say that so that we're just reminded, say that together on the count of three, bold and loud, one, two, three, to live is Christ. Right on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, what a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Thank you, Lord, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it is real and vibrant, God-breathed and timely and therefore timeless. The out-breathings of Almighty God that, uh, that graced our ears this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to, uh, and even to, to think about our own lives and to think about uh, our lives and, and what is our life and to think about, uh, to have a clear understanding of death, to die is gain. Oh, what are we going to do while time remains? Help us, Father, to purpose in our hearts what you'd have us to do. Stir our hearts. May they be tender and tenderized by you. And I pray you'd bless the hearing of the word to our hearts and minds. In Christ's name we pray.